you will turn in your Bible to Acts chapter 20. Um, your New Testament goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts. We've been in Acts for a few months now, walking through um, how God's big story has continued to unfold through His Spirit-empowered people. So um, we started telling the story in Genesis a couple years ago, and we walked through the story of the Old Testament. Then we saw how the Old Testament was fulfilled in the story of Jesus, and then through, through Acts, we're seeing how that story continues to unfold through God's Spirit-empowered people um, from Jerusalem all the way to the ends of the earth, all the way 2,000 years later right here in Sweetwater, America. Pretty amazing. And through you, it continues to move forward. So, so Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word's not dead, dry, dull, dusty. Your word is living and active and sharper than any double-edged sword. So, Lord, we just expect you're going to speak to us through your word. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Uh, so, I've preached a lot of funerals over the past 17. I've been doing this 17 or so years, and I've preached a lot of funerals in that time. I was thinking about that this last week. I mean, hundreds, hundreds of funerals, and, and, and a lot of those have been for members of my own family. And so, some funerals are, are really hard to do because you're close. Um, and so, like my dad's funeral, that was really hard. That was a hard thing. Um, uh, had the opportunity to... to preach funerals for both of my grandmothers, and uh, Derek Montgomery and, and Cody uh, Muncie did that yesterday for their godly grandmother, and it's just a privilege, but sometimes that's tough too, and uh, some funerals are difficult because they're, they're surrounded by tragic circumstances, and, 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 and some are difficult because you really don't know much about the person, and you're just kind of relying on what others are telling you, and um, you know, and in most funerals, an obituary is read, um, and that's the record of the facts of somebody's life. Um, you ever think about what your obituary will say? Um, that might be morbid or sound morbid, but you ever think about what your obituary is going gonna, is gonna to say? And I have an uncle, Uncle Dan. Uh, I've got some family here, that my mom and my sister are here today. My uncle Dan, you said, when I was a little boy, he would always open up the newspaper to the obituary section. I said, oh, why, why are you always read that? He said, I'm just checking to see if my name's in there, you know? And so I guess that made sense at the time. But um, I don't know what that means. But anyway, um, question, how will you be remembered? by those that you leave behind. Um, so one time I preached a funeral for an, an older man. This was years ago, probably 15 years ago. I preached a funeral for an older man, and I kind of got the details of his life from his family. And, and it was a beautiful service, but the family wanted everybody that wanted to to come up and say something. And I've since, you know, kind of recommended against that practice. But, but um, people came and spoke beautifully about him. His grandparents, uh, his grandchildren read cards and letters they had written and and then finally, uh, an older, another older gentleman kind of uh, hobbles up from the back and he grabs the microphone. He says, I don't know who that blankety-blank man was y'all were talking about, but let me tell you what he was really like. And, and um, it was awkward to say the least. I mean, um, uh, the grandchildren were crying. Everybody else had shocked looks. I, you know, I'm, I'm sitting here in a, in a suit, you know, two sizes too big, and I just froze. I didn't know what, I didn't know yet at that time how to, how to tackle somebody to take the microphone away. You know, I didn't even know that was an option. And, and uh, I mean, everybody was mortified. I wanted to disappear. I just froze. And, and finally he gets done, and, and, and I, you know, take the, uh, the microphone back, close in prayer. We go. I didn't know what, what else could be done at that point. But, you know, I share all of that today. Because as morbid as it may sound, there is value in imagining how our lives, um, what our lives will be like at the end. Um, 
The end of our lives may be coming soon for some of us. It may be far, far away. And, and really, none of us know, however old or young we are, none of us know how many days we're going to be given, how many years we're going to be given. Uh, I was talking about this in staff meeting this last week, and Gretchen, our education minister, if you see Gretchen, be sure to wish her a happy birthday today. Um, but uh, uh, Gretchen mentioned, oh, that's like that uh, there's, a, there's a, a description of an exercise in Stephen Covey's book, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And so, um, and so uh, Gretchen loaned me the book, and, and in the book, Covey uh, says, imagine uh, that you show up for a funeral, and there's lots of cars there. You, you pull up to the, the chapel or the funeral home, you go inside, and, and all, all these loved ones and friends and family are gathered there. You grab a, a bulletin, you, you, you go down to the front where the casket is open, and you look in, and you see that the person in the casket is you. This is your funeral three years from today. He says, and, and, and somebody from your family gets up to speak, a, a friend gets up to speak, a co-worker gets up to speak. Um, what do those people say about you? How do they remember you? Uh, yeah, uh, how would you... Um, wow. <laughs> um, Some, is everybody okay? Um, somebody's funeral might be a little sooner than we thought. Don't know what happened, but I'm just, I'm just going to press on. Um, he says, what, what, character, what character would you like them to have seen in you? What contributions, what achievements would you want them to remember? Look carefully at the people around you. What difference would you like to have made in their lives? He goes on to say, if you participated seriously in the visualization... You touch for a moment on some of your deep, fundamental values. Deep, fundamental values. And values are what I want to talk with you about today. Um, there are some core values. We're either going to live by some core and kind of ultimate values, or we're going to live by kind of what, what seems valuable in the moment. Andy Stanley, talking about this exercise, says, what we naturally want is often in conflict with what, we, with, with what we ultimately value. So, so I, I might say that I really highly value physical fitness, um, but the reality is, why are you laughing? I, I don't, people laughed in the first service too. I may say that I really value physical fitness, but the thing is, I really want tacos. And so, and so I love tacos. And so um, uh, there is an alter ego that Jessica has, has, uh, has uh, uh, affectionately named uh, Taco Mat, okay? But um, so I, I, I want, I value health, but I naturally want tacos. And, and, and sometimes those values um, conflict with each other. Every day those values conflict with each other. And so um, if integrity is an ultimate value for me, and it is, so if at, at my funeral one day I hope people say he was a man of integrity. I hope they say, you know what, well, he, 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 he was outside the same as he was inside and vice versa. And so if integrity is a value for me, then this week, if I get tempted to tell a little white lie or to spread something that isn't true, whether it's on social media or it's around the coffee pot, if integrity is truly a, a, a core value for me, when that value comes into conflict with what I want in the moment, I really want to spread this false thing, if I, if I know what my ultimate value is, it makes it easier to resist that temptation. Does that make sense? 
Um, and so, uh, so probably, if, as we imagine our funeral, nobody gets up and says, well, he worked all the time and I just didn't ever know him. Probably nobody says, she was always right. That's what I loved about her so much. <laughs> nobody says, you know, and he, he, he irrationally opposed uh, every change that ever came around the, the bend. Nobody says, you know, he always got his way. That's what was so lovable about him. We, we, we don't, now we may, in the moment, we may want those things. But those aren't what we ultimately value. And our values, our ultimate values can be shaped by and can be formed by and can be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news that Jesus, crucified and risen, is the Lord of the universe. And so in Acts 20, all of that to say, in Acts 20, Paul is going to meet with the elders of the Ephesian church. And he's going to say some things to them that are really important. He's close to the end of his life. But not only that, he knows he's never going to see them again. And you think about like what your last words would be to your life group or your coworkers or your family. These last words from Paul carry a lot of weight. He, he's stating to these Ephesian elders some core values, some ultimate values that he has lived by. And I would say that if there's some values we can identify for Paul, some things that are written in Paul's obituary, um, those, are, those are probably good, good values for the rest of us to grab hold of as well. So John Stott makes um, three helpful observations. The first one is that this passage we're about to read is the only passage in Acts, this is the only speech in Acts that is delivered to a Christian audience. Every other, every other speech or sermon or message we see in Acts is delivered to people trying to win them to Christ. This message, if you're a Christian, is very applicable to, be, to you because this is the only message in Acts that Paul delivers to a specifically Christian audience. We'll save the other two observations for later. I just want to begin with chapter 20, verse 1. After the uproar ceased, Paul sent for the disciples. After encouraging them, he said farewell and departed from Macedonia. When he had gone through those, these regions and had given them much encouragement, he came to Greece. There he spent three months um, and, and, and let's pause there. While Paul was in Greece, most likely, he wrote two of his greatest works. He wrote, sec, he wrote 2 Corinthians, where something had happened to him previously when he was in Ephesus that had just brought him close to despair and close to giving up and throwing the towel and everything. We talked about this last week, and, and Paul wrote the Corinthians about that and about the comfort that he had received from the Spirit of God. And then he also wrote from Greece, he wrote during this dark period of his life, he wrote his, his greatest and the greatest theological letter ever to be written, he wrote the letter to the Romans, okay? And then he picks up from here and he moves further. And what he's doing is he's on his way to Jerusalem. What's going to happen to him in Jerusalem, and everywhere he goes, people warn him, what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem is he's going to be arrested, he's going to be hauled to Rome, and he's going to go to Rome, not as he intended to, he's going to go to Rome in chains, okay? Picking up in verse 7, uh, on the first day of the week, we were gathered together to break bread. Paul talked with them, intending to depart on the next day, and he prolonged his speech until midnight. Everybody say that with me, midnight. Okay, so uh, this has nothing to do with the rest of the sermon, but I just, you know. There were many lamps in the upper room where we were gathered, a young man named Eutychus. Now, Eutychus is a common slave's name. This is, a, again, a, a picture, a reminder that all kinds of uh, racial and socioeconomic folks were, were, were gathered together in the body, that, that, that the gospel transcends those barriers. Eutychus also, is, in Greek, means lucky. So keep that in mind. Lucky is his name. He's a young man sitting in the window, sunk into a deep sleep as Paul talked, still longer. And being overcome by sleep, he fell down from the third story and was taken up dead. 
But Paul went down, bent over him, taking him in his arms, said, Do not be alarmed, his life is in him. When Paul had gone up and had broken bread and eaten, he conversed with him a long while until daybreak, and so departed. And they took the youth away alive and were not a little comforted. So this is why you don't fall asleep in church, right? He, he, if Paul preaches all night long, a kid's sitting in the window, he falls down dead. Paul goes, revives him. I don't know if I can do that for you, so it's just better to stay awake. And then Paul, and this is what I love about Paul. Paul brings him back and keeps preaching all night long. He didn't stop, okay? So remember that the next time you think that I am long-winded, okay? Um, again, that has nothing to do with the rest, but a preacher can't read over that and not, and not talk about that, all right? So we're going to pick up in verse 17. And, 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 and now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders, plural, of the church, singular, to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them. Now, now what happens here is Paul is on his way to Jerusalem. He wants to spend some time with the elders, the leaders, the pastors of this church in Ephesus. But he knows if he goes to Ephesus, he's going to be there. Kind of like if you're on a road trip and you go through, let's say, Lubbock, and you, you want to see Aunt Susie in Lubbock, but you know it's going to take six hours. You just kind of keep on rolling through. Well, Paul says, you know, I want to see these guys, but if I go all the way to Ephesus, I'm going to be there a while. So he calls, he sends a message for the elders to meet him in Miletus. Uh, he says, you yourselves know how I lived among you. We're going to read this whole passage, and then we're going to come back, and we're going to identify some core values for Paul. But, uh, but, but John Stott, again, mentioned three things about this. One, uh, this is the only passage in Acts devoted uh, totally to Christians. Two, um, elder, pastor, and overseer are three words we're going to encounter this in this passage that all refer to the same exact group of people. So if that sounds familiar, you know, tonight we're going to vote on uh, some change in our bylaws, change in our structure, where no longer will I be the lone uh, lead pastor of our, of our church, but I will share that role with some volunteer elders. We get this right here from Acts chapter 20 and several other places in the New Testament, but elder, pastor, overseer are all used interchangeably to refer to the same exact group of people. Third, Stott points out these elders, these pastors serve together as a team. It's not a lone pastor trying to do everything, and it's not a hierarchy where there's bishop up here and pastor down here. These are, these are men serving together as a team, shepherding the flock of God together, shepherding one another and shepherding the flock of God together. Okay? So let's read the passage. Um, when he came to them, he said to them, verse 18, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia. He points to his example. He says, serving the Lord with all humility. You might circle that word humility. Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials uh, that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, big group and small group, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now, behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of value or as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course and the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Grab that. He says, I don't count my life of any value. I just want to finish the job that Jesus has given me to do. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all. He's not saying he's never done anything wrong. He's saying, he's going to clarify that in the next verse. I have preached God's word faithfully 
to you. I've presented the truth to you. Therefore, now you're responsible for what you do with it. I did not shrink back, verse 27, from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Verse 28, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. And now I command you to God, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or clothing or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than receive. So from that, uh, that talk that Paul gave, really Luke's notes on his talk, there are a few core values, I believe, that we can extract. Things that Paul are saying, these were life-defining values that characterize his life. And the first is verse 19. He says, um, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. Paul's life is characterized by humility. Um, Sometimes we might think that humility means we don't have strong opinions. Well, Paul has very strong opinions. Uh, But humility is that I don't love that opinion more than I love Jesus and more than I love people. Um, Humility means I'm not the star of the show. Jesus is the hero of the story. Paul, at every turn, at every opportunity, he shines the spotlight on Jesus. It's not about me. It's about Jesus. Paul's life is characterized by humility. And, and pair, he pairs with humility tears. You know, uh, my heart isn't probably by nature extremely nurturing. And I run into that. My bedside manner um, often needs a lot of work. And so just imagine what I would be like if God's spirit wasn't working in me. Um, but... <clears throat> But as the gospel takes root in us, humility develops. And I have become, over the past few years, a bigger crybaby than I ever thought I would be. God will not bless a tearless ministry. Whether that's a ministry to your family, your children, your spouse, your friends, your co-workers, your life group, your class, whatever it is, um, God deepens us and as he deepens us we find that it just kind of leaks out of our eyes and 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 paul wept with those who were hurting he wept for those who were lost he wept for those that rebelled he wept uh for those that that were struggling and and guys um humility and tears go together the gospel produces humility in us Um, one of the ways we can know that God's Spirit is working in us is that we become humble. And Paul defines humility so clearly in Philippians 2. He says, look at Jesus. He didn't hold on to his position. He didn't hold on to his rights. He didn't demand uh, to make it about him, but he emptied himself and he humbled himself all the way to the cross. And we humble ourselves as we bow our knee to him. Paul's characterized by humility. Paul is also characterized by boldness. Verse 20, how I did not shrink 
from declaring to you anything that was profitable. I went in the big group gathering. I went house to house. Two different times Paul talks about tears in this passage. And two different times he says, I didn't shrink back. Sometimes we think that a Christian has to be, uh, and we think that humility means I just never can have strong opinions and I've just got to try to please everybody. That's not humility. That's being a slave. I can guarantee you one thing that won't be written on my tombstone, one thing that will not be in my obituary is that he made everybody happy. That can't happen. Ken, has, has, if he adjusts the, the temperature in here, he's going to make five people happy, he's going to make ten people upset. It's impossible to please everybody. And the more we try to do that, the more of a slave we become. We can be humble and we can also be brave. And, and the Spirit of God produces both of those qualities in us. And humility tempers our courage. And courage bolsters our humility. And, and so often we think of courage or bravery as being somebody that's doing this all the time and you can't tell me anything. That's not bravery. That's arrogance. It's foolishness. But, but the gospel will, will make you brave. And the gospel will make you humble. The gospel will make me humble. And the gospel will make me brave. Are any of us perfect at that yet? No. Paul, somebody could have tapped Paul on the shoulder and said, well, you weren't very humble when you wouldn't let John Mark go on the mission trip and you held that against him. Yeah, he missed it there. But humility had become a characteristic that defines his life. Courage became a value, a quality that defines his life. His life could be defined by endurance. Verse 21, testifying both to the Jews and the Greeks of repentance toward God and the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He just, everywhere he went, he told the, whoever he came in contact with the gospel. And he got, got, ran out of town. He got rocks thrown at him. He got beaten. He got thrown in prison. And he just, he got rejected and he kept doing it. Verse 22, and now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. Imagine you're driving to, I don't know, Baton Rouge, Louisiana, okay? And every time you stop for gas or at a convenience store, people run out and say, if you go to Baton Rouge, they're going to beat you there. And they're going to beat you down, and you're going to be treated cruelly and unfairly, and you're going to be thrown in prison. How many would want to go ahead and turn around and come back home to Sweetwater? Probably most of us. Everywhere Paul goes, people are telling him, man, it, it's nothing good's waiting for you in Jerusalem. But the Holy Spirit has told him there. And his life is characterized by endurance, or as John Wayne might call it, grit. And the Spirit of God produces in us grit. That no matter what I'm going through, I'm not going to quit. That's what, and, and, and the way the Holy Spirit creates forms Grit in us is through struggle and through suffering. Faithfulness, he says in verse 24, but I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry I receive from the Lord Jesus. Paul is characterized by faithfulness. He said, I don't count my life. It's not about me. Life isn't about my comfort. Life isn't about my, my privilege. Life is about fulfilling the assignment that God has given me. Did you know that God has given you work to do? And some of us uh, spend so much time and angst trying to figure out exactly what it is that God wants us to do. And, and, and some of us don't even ever stop to consider that God would have something to do. And I love the way Bob Goff puts it, that what if God's big plan for our lives was that we just go love everybody? Let's start there. Let's start there, and we'll find that we've got a pretty full-time job. Be faithful to that. Skip down to verse 33. 
33, and we're going to come back up later. He says, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who were with me. Um, in all things I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said it is more blessed to give than receive. Paul's life is characterized by generosity. Generosity has been a value that characterizes his life. It's an ultimate value. Back up to verse 28. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to the flock. Watch yourself, watch the flock, in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Now he's talking again to this plural team of pastors, elders, overseers. And he's telling them, shepherd one another, shepherd yourselves, so that as a team you can shepherd the flock of God to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. He says that, that the church was obtained with the blood. This is an unusual way for Paul. Normally he would say the blood of Jesus, but he says the God's own blood. Obviously Jesus is God, but this is a powerful way to state this, that God shed his blood for the church. The church is beautiful. The church isn't, isn't something that we just, um, that, that we just uh, come and and. and, 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 and and show up at every now and then. It's the people that we belong to. We're gathered as the church today in the huddle and we're going to scatter out to be the church from this place and the church has been bought with the highest price possible. It means something. Paul knows his time is coming soon. And look at what he says. Verse 29, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted, perverted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease day or night to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Paul is passionate about the next generation of believers. Paul is passionate about the next generation. He has poured his life into these elders. And now he commends them to God's grace. He commends them to God's word. And he charges them, watch yourselves. Watch each other shepherd the flock. At a certain point, life stops being about us. And it starts being about the next generation of disciple makers. That's how Christianity has spread all down the generations for the past 2,000 years, at a certain point, one generation is gripped by this reality that the shot clock on my life is counting down. I've only got a few hours or weeks or months or years left. And what I want to do with the time I have left is I want to raise up a generation of disciple makers so that lives can be transformed from here on out. It's not about me anymore. It's about the mission and the mission is making disciples for Jesus. Paul's passionate about the next generation. So just review those for a minute. Humility, strength, courage, endurance, faithfulness, generosity, passion for the next generation. Anybody think those are a pretty good set of ultimate values? And you might have some that you want to add to the list. But if we will live in light of those gospel values, those, those spirit-empowered values, those Christ-centered values, then that gives us a grid by which we may resist the daily natural pull of temptation. Because every day you're going to be tempted to think only about you. 
Every day it's going to be natural to be greedy rather than generous. Every day it's going to be a temptation to live for yourself rather than others. Every day you're going to be, and I'm going to be tempted to quit rather than to live in endurance. Every day we're going to be tempted to arrogance or to, or to, or to, or to, uh, to, to be in a pushover. So, 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 so be grounded in gospel values and use those as a grid to determine is what I value going to outlive me? Will what you value outlive you? Also in verses 28 through 32, bear with me a moment and then we're going to dismiss. Paul gives us a grid in verse 28 through 32 to evaluate what a good shepherd or a good pastor looks like. Um, he's about 5'10", he has a beard, um, he wears long sleeves. No, that's not what he says. He doesn't say anything about, um, about the things that we often get caught up, but he, he, he describes the role of a pastor. And so, oh good, we can evaluate the pastor, and then we can take that a step further, and he gives us a grid that we can evaluate ourselves. Because at the end of the day, we're all called to shepherd one another, Right? We're all called priests, a holy priesthood, a royal nation. Uh, we're, we're, we're priests before God to shepherd one another. So he says in this passage, verses 28 through 32, he says, watch your life. Keep a close watch on your life. Watch the flock. Shepherd, care for. That's the word where we get our word pastor. A shepherd leads by Christ-like example. Paul refers to his example. Um, a shepherd leads in humility. Probably not going to be perfect humility, but on average, a shepherd leads in humility. A shepherd defends the flock from wolves. So part of what you need in a pastor is you need somebody that's going to be really tender, but you also need somebody that's courageous. And you need somebody, according to Paul here, who is doing that as a team member with people watching his back, shepherding him as they are together shepherding you, and as then you turn around and shepherd one another. He says, watch your life, watch the flock. Sometimes we shepherd each other by prayer, by weeping, by warning. Maybe you're not an elder, maybe you're not a pastor, Paul's words still apply to you, because most of us aren't elders or pastors and won't be. Watch your life, does that still apply to you? Yes. Watch your life. Watch the flock. Now, some of us only watch ourselves and we say, well, I'm doing pretty good. Me and Jesus are doing great, but we don't, you know, people are on fire all around us and we're not even paying attention. That's not healthy. And some of us are so caught up in watching other people that we have no idea what's going on under our own hood. That's not healthy either. And Jesus says, before you take the speck out of your brother's eye, take the log out of your own. And he says, and we often don't quote the next part, he says, then help your brother. Then help your brother. So watch yourself. Take the log out of your eye. Watch the flock. Help your brother or sister take the speck out of theirs. We shepherd each other as a body. We shepherd each other by prayer. Man, if I'm not praying for you, I can't love you. If you're not praying for your spouse, your, 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 your children, your, 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 your neighbors, your co-workers, fellow students, fellow class, whoever your flock is, your life group, your class, if you're not praying for them, whether you're the leader or not, if you're not praying for them, 
You can't shepherd them. You can't love them. Weep with those who weep. Weep with the hurting. Weep for the ones that are hurting. Warn. Warning is part of what it means to be a shepherd, to shepherd one another. Hey, I see where you're going and it doesn't lead to a good place. I'm warning you, don't do that. I'm admonishing you. I'm, I'm warning you, that's not good. Pray, weep, warn, shepherd. Since the passing of Dr. Ken Lyle Sr., many of you know him. He was the interim pastor here before me and, and uh, just continued to graciously pour into my life after he left here. Um, I've thought a lot of this passage that I'm about to read and then I'm going to close. I thought a lot about this passage from Romans chapter 12. Um, you know, Dr. Lyle probably was usually right, but that's not something that he lorded over anybody. Um, as I thought about it, as I think about his life, I think about someone who's truly kind, known by kindness, known by a love of truth, known by a love of people, known by a quiet, humble kindness. In this passage, Romans 12, the Lord brought to my mind regarding Dr. Lyle and decades or years from now, when some people gather at my service, I hope they'll think about this passage and I hope in the years to come, these words will consistently and more deeply characterize my life. Romans 12, 9, let love be genuine. Hate what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo each other in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. It is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. I have a long ways to go. But my prayer is that the values laid out in this passage will more and more, next year more than last year, characterize my life. I ask you to think about what are your truest, deepest, ultimate values. How are your true values in conflict with the natural wants and desires? Are your true values, gospel values, are they shaped by the, by, by the gospel? What will, will what you value outlive you. You know, you can start rewriting your obituary today. However much time you have left, you can start rewriting it today. And my last comment is that regardless of what our friends and loved ones say about us one day, regardless of what they say, because they might be wrong, right? One day, everybody in here is going to stand before a loving and a holy, and a sovereign God. What, what, what words do you want to hear from Him? I, I, I think I know what words we all want to hear. Ultimately, our salvation is going to be rooted in, did you know Jesus or not? And if you know Jesus, man, that's the, that's the biggest word you could hear. Welcome. 
But I don't think any of us here want to say, want, want to hear, well, you made it by the skin of your teeth, you know. I think we want to hear, well done. You, you did something with what I gave you. Well done. What do you want to hear on that day? We can live today in light of that day. We can live today in light of that day. And when we live today in, that, in light of that day, the band's coming up. And when we live today in light of that day, that brings us, if we're honest, to a place of repentance. Which is what Paul says to the Ephesian elders, man, I was constantly inviting people to repent and believe. So maybe there's repentance that needs to happen. Maybe there's values that you've been living by values down here when really your true values are here. I mean, you need to repent. Maybe it's time for you to, for the first time ever, place your trust in Jesus.